Hello and welcome to the Harvard EdCast, a series of conversations with thought leaders in the field of education from across the country and around the world. I'm your host, Matt Weber, and today is a special listener-requested show. Our listeners out there can submit people they'd like to hear on the EdCast, and one of the current HGSE students, Charles Miller, suggested John Palmer, Associate Professor of Educational Studies at Colgate University and the Associate Provost for Equity. John, welcome to the EdCast. Well, thank you so much for having me. I am uh, I'm looking forward to this. So, John, this is a great opportunity to take some questions that our listeners have out there, and most of these questions are supplied by uh, Charles Miller, an ed school student, and also, I believe, a former student of yours at Colgate. So he writes, how will current and or changing immigration policy affect primary education in the United States? Before you answer that question, just a little bit about your background, your research, and, ju- and then jump into the answer. Yeah, certainly. I've been at Colgate uh, University since 2002. Charles Miller was a student of mine, uh, one of my favorites. I still uh, talk about him in many of my classes going forward. Uh, My current research is looking at North Korean refugee uh, resettlers in the South Korean schools. Basically, uh, the title of the book is Educating the Enemy, uh, how South Korean schools are are trying to educate uh, these North Korean uh, youth in their high schools and colleges. Um, But to answer your question about immigration, uh, particularly to the United States, um, uh, when I think about this, I think of Pedro Noguera. I think about his statement that our public schools are our last line of defense. And if we cannot educate our most marginalized students in these classrooms, then we will be at a significant loss. Many ways when we begin thinking about our schools today, we, we, we need to think that they're not cookie cutter, that they aren't all for white suburban America, that, that there is great amounts of diversity that reflects America today. And this, this comes from uh, my work here in Syracuse as well, looking at the, the recent refugee population that is here and their struggles within the schools. And we keep thinking, why is policy one way and one way only. Um, so I, I'm really hoping that, uh, you know, from the White House to, to local governments to uh, state governments can begin to think, uh, think more clearly about what it means to educate the future of America with immigrants, uh, with refugees, with students of color, with the poor, with the most marginalized uh, students in mind, um, rather than always thinking about our top uh, priority or our top students going off and doing great things at places like Harvard and Colgate, uh, certainly they are important to us. But if we fail to educate the bottom third, so to say, or those that are struggling the most within our schools, we will be as a society at a, a significant loss. And speaking of this sort of society and the very global society that we are part of, it seems like, John, your work is particularly important as it relates to refugees, as it relates to immigration, and as it relates to the Korean Peninsula right now. This is a true confluence of a lot of your research coming to a head in mainstream media. Oh, certainly. Uh, You know, I'm still hoping to lead a study group to uh, South Korea in the fall of uh, 2018. 
I don't know how many students will be signing up for that study group right now, but it is significant. The work that we've done, we've uh, Colgate, what I've done while I've been in, in the South Korean schools with refugees there, is that, you know, it's beyond having their voices heard. It's, as if it's actually recognition within society that they did not cause, they are, they, they are not the creation of their specific identities. It is this global, as you mentioned, Matt, it is this global identity that is coming down upon them. Uh, my work here in Syracuse is, is significantly different than the North Korean refugees uh, in South Korea in the sense that many of them do not have formal schooling. Uh, you know, once they reach the age of 21, they, they are aged out of our schools. Uh, I've been working with a young man who is, is a wonderful, uh, wonderful soccer player, a, a wonderful heart. But, uh, you know, even the, the soccer coach approached him and said, you want to be a part of the team? And he said, sure, yeah, he's all excited. And he's too old to play on a varsity high school soccer team. Uh, so there's there's just there's just no leniency uh, in thinking about our new incoming students and the places that they fill. Um, for the younger students we work with here in Syracuse, again, their most significant issue is English, is trying to pick up the English language. But, you know, from research we know if that, if, if that L1 is not in place, the L2 cannot, you know, cannot, uh, cannot be learned really in, in any uh, manner uh, or form, so to say. So they, they don't have any formal learning in their first language, and they're trying to th throw in English language learning on top of that, on top of other things when it comes to some of these younger people, the, the post-traumatic stress, the, the movement across this world, um, uh, divided families. And our schools, as I said before, Pedro Nogueira says it, says it best, we're the last line of defense for these, these young people. And if the schools can't do it, you know, they're, they're going to be lost in, in, within our society. Yeah, I think you've, you've, you've hit the nail on the head there. And in terms of threading a lot of your work, whether the work is happening in Syracuse or in the Korean Peninsula, um, it seems like Charles, in his questionings, really was concerned with having social justice be a part of education. And John, I'm curious what you would say, uh, how you would define social justice as it relates to education, part of family life, and even part of education reform writ large. Certainly. Thank you for that. That's, you know, that's a significant question as it relates to Colgate University's Department of Educational Studies. Uh, we have been putting in all of our job ads, you know, we want applicants that are social justice focused. And we keep asking ourselves, what does social justice focus mean? It means connecting with one another. It means, you know, hearing these stories out, understanding the backgrounds. And, and, and then it's not that I'm going to knight my students empowered. It's they're going to be empowered through the engagement of their own identities at a place like Colgate, at places like Harvard. That's the social justice education that we're that we're looking for. Yes, we want opportunities, and yes, we want more equal access to these opportunities. But you know, we live in a world that is divided on these opportunities, and so part of that social justice. Uh, the social justice focus is this. 
it's that we're not going to sit around and say, okay, how many beans do you have? We want the same amount of beans as you do. No, we're going to take what you've given us and we're going to move forward with that. We're going to, to expand the spaces that you have already provided for us and make us the center and no longer it will they'll be marginalized. We will all be part of this center. But, you know, for the longest time, multicultural education to social justice education has been on this focus of gives and takes, so to say, or the haves and the have-nots, and the have-nots are always left out. Well, my focus and the social justice focus is on both of these entities, the haves and the have-nots, that the haves become awakened to their privileges, awakened to the ways in which they contribute to the oppression, that's social justice education, but also to the have-nots of we can overcome these things, we can build from these things, and, and we are listening to those stories to find out how best to address those types of marginalized students. So that's, that's how I see social ju justice in a, in, a, in a very short way. You know, speaking, let's jumping over to the the title of your book. It's called "Educating the Enemy," right? Yes. Uh, the enemy is generally per perceived in many respects as a lot of people have their perceptions of North Korea and the people of North Korea. What is a big perception you'd like to have shifted or changed for people listening to this podcast about North Korean immigrants and what it is that they crave, what is it that they receive, what is it that they need when they come to South Korea in terms of school? No, that's a wonderful question. It all comes down to deficit thinking. Uh, the way in which North Koreans, uh, large part, have been written as, you know, completely shut off from the world, and if you're shut off from the world, then you are ignorant to the world. Uh, these are very bright young people that, that we've met with and talked with. Yes, certainly they, they have told their story time and time again. And they made it clear to me when, when we were requesting interviews, they really don't want us to focus on that escape story, the ways in which they, they suffered uh, through the escape to get to South Korea. No, they wanted us to focus in on, once again, what they were doing there in South Korea. But at the same time, they wanted to get rid of this idea of, you know, because of our backgrounds, everybody seems to have some pity upon us that, you know, they always think that they're, they're less than everybody else. No, they are not less than anybody else. They're actually quite resilient young men and women. And we asked the question at the very end, and this, this is what I would like people to know. We, you know, we said, you know, for all aspects of educating the enemy, or we also think about educating the, the, the ambassadors of reunification, um, is do they want to go back to North Korea? And every one of them said, yes, they want to go back home for all of their ways to escape this oppressive nation. They wanted to go back to their homes, where the people that they grew up with, the people, their families, their friends, their schoolmates, through all of this, they still wanted to go back. They still, they, 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 they refused to talk negatively about the government. They refused to talk negatively about North Korea, but they saw that as, as, as essential. And, and, you know, again, listening to those stories were, were quite um, uh, awakening to me. Uh, John, last question. We often talk about our favorite teachers. We, we think about them. And in the case of, of yourself, Charles Miller, who is a student at the Ed School, 
told me you were one of his favorite teachers, told me all sorts of great things, why he liked you so much. We never usually ask teachers why they like particular students. And you mentioned that Charles was a, 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 a you were fond of him as a student. What is it that a teacher likes in a good student? Uh, just engaging. I mean, I, I, you cannot stress enough that, you know, I don't want a student to, to regurgitate everything that I say. I often say, again, with social justice education, it's like I don't want a bunch of, I don't want to be the Pied Piper and everybody come and follow and hang on my words because the next great teacher will come along and you'll follow that person. You know, you want those students who are questioning that they will, will engage you, that will will challenge you to to. to support your beliefs and your theories and your ideologies and put those things forward and and you know that's what charles did i mean that's i think you probably have uh, thousands of those students at harvard we have hundreds of them here at Colgate constantly inquiring, constantly asking for deeper explanations, and that's what inspires us as teachers. But again, you know, it, it's, these, it, it, it's these future connections, you know, running into Charles uh, last year in Atlanta was just, you know, a breath of fresh air. There, there, was, there he was, and this is a student that, as I said, it, I talk about him in my race and education class every year about the ways in which he challenged me. And I want students to know that it's, it's not about, you know, trying to out-duel me. It's not about winning the debate. It's, it's, it's about this, this true privilege of being on campuses like this where, where when are you going to get that opportunity again to engage in these academic inquiries, to engage in, in these authors, these scholars that we're reading, and really questioning what, it, what is happening and how we can make, uh, in our field here, how can we make the schools better? How can we make the schools more welcoming? And, and trust me here, it, it's back to that students, what kind of students inspire me. It's those that make me rethink my theories or, or think a different way about the ways in which I see uh, public policy, uh, our school public policy is coming down. So Charles was definitely one of those that was not afraid to challenge, was not afraid to uh, engage. But on, on top of that, you know, he, he understood the readings. You know, he, he read... He read the centerpiece of our discussions. You know, it wasn't just coming in, waking up, and saying, "Okay, uh, I'm, we're going to discuss social justice education from my 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 background." It was engaging in those readings around those scholars that uh, that that we put forward in the classroom. John Palmer, associate professor of educational studies at Colgate University. John, where can people learn more about your work, or uh, if they wanted to purchase your book? Um, well, the, the the book is not out yet. The Educating the Enemy is still working on that. My other book is from the University of Hawaii called uh, The Dance of Identities. And my second book is through Paul Grave McMillan, um, and I'm forgetting the title right now, something about East Asian higher education. <laughs> we'll put it in the bio. Uh, John, <laughs> John, thanks so much for being on the show. It's very clear that in just under 12 minutes you've shown me what Charles was raving about you. You're doing fantastic work, and we're glad you were able to be on the EdCast today. Thank you so much, Matt. We'll talk soon. This has been the Harvard EdCast, a production of the Harvard Graduate School of Education. If you have any suggestions for guests, we will offer up once a semester a listener-based suggestion for guests. Maybe it's your favorite teacher. I'm Matt Weber. Thank you kindly for listening.